Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name's Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, last spring, when the pandemic started, y'all remember when the pandemic started, right? Last spring, when the pandemic started, we began to spend more time at home. And so maybe during this period of quarantine, we started watching more TV, more movies, uh, reading more books than we normally do. And it got me thinking how when it comes to TV and movies and books, a lot of us get really serious about these things called spoilers. You know what I'm talking about? What does a spoiler refer to? A spoiler refers to giving the plot away, especially the ending. Uh, We don't want somebody to tell us the ending of a story before we actually engage that ending for ourselves. Otherwise, that person will have ruined the entire story for us. In fact, at one point, Roger Ebert, you've heard of Roger Ebert before, right? The famous movie critic, he passed away in 2013. This is what he wrote at one point regarding spoilers. These words are up here on the screen. He said, in the case of some films, even to hint that there is a surprise is to reveal too much. In my review of Million Dollar Baby, for example, which I consider the best film of 2004, I wrote, it is a movie about a boxer. What else it is, all it is, how deep it goes, what emotional power it contains, I cannot suggest in this review because I will not spoil the experience of following this story into the deepest secrets of life and death. And so there we have it, folks. Spoilers are a serious matter. Spoilers are a big deal. Well, all due respect to Roger Ebert and those of us who might not like spoilers, but we may be interested to know about a recent study from two researchers at the University of California, San Diego. In their study, and this is up on the screen, these researchers suggest that spoilers don't actually spoil stories. Can you believe that? Spoilers don't actually spoil stories. Instead, contrary to popular wisdom, spoilers may even enhance our enjoyment of a story. And so the study ran three experiments based on 12 short stories, and each version of the story was read by at least 30 people. That's a pretty good pool of people. Uh, 30 people read these stories. Surprisingly, researchers discovered that the study participants preferred the spoiled version of suspenseful stories. For example, in one case, uh, the participants were told before reading the story that a condemned man's daring escape is all just a fantasy just something that he dreams up, makes up in his mind before the news snaps around his neck. And so that spoiler alert actually helped these participants to enjoy the story even more. And one of the researchers had an interesting theory about why people like learning the spoiler. This is what he said. It could be that once you know how the story turns out, you're more comfortable processing the information and you can focus on a deeper understanding of the story. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Well, for six weeks now, for about a month and a half, our congregation has been journeying through a message series that we've entitled The Short of It, uh, the entire story of the Bible from creation to new creation. The Short of It, the entire story of the Bible from creation to new creation. And in this message series, uh, we've been engaging the story of God, the story of God that we find in Scripture, 
God's word, we've been trying to see the Bible from a 30,000-foot view. Uh, we said at the beginning of the sermon series that a lot of us might be familiar with individual parts and pieces of the Bible. Uh, for instance, we might be familiar with some of the characters, some of the stories, some of the passages. But what we need and what God is inviting us into is an overall framework, an overarching framework in which to put all these individual parts and pieces. And that's what we've been trying to draw from this message series. And so this morning, as we close out this message series, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but we are going to end the series today. Uh, this morning, as we close out this series, the message that I'm going to preach today is going to involve a spoiler, because we're going to talk about how the story of God ends before that ending has actually taken place in real time. But as we're going to see in this sermon, rather than being a bad thing, knowing how the story of God ends is a good thing, because it means that we can engage God's story much more fully in the present and the way that God wants us to and the way that God intends for us to. But before we delve into what Scripture teaches about the end, uh, what I want to do first is I want to give a quick recap of where we've been in the sermon series. And so in this sermon series, the short of it, the entire story of the Bible from creation to new creation and trying to see Scripture from a 30,000-foot view, we've been looking at six major movements of the Bible. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, and new creation. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, and new creation. And so we started six weeks ago by looking at the movement of creation, and we saw in that movement that God didn't have to make creation. God didn't need to make creation. God didn't have to put this world together, but rather God did so out of love. Uh, that God is love, as the apostle John tells us in 1 John 4, and the love within God's own being could not be contained. It just spilled out into God's act of creation. That when God made this universe, it was whole, it was complete, it was good, it lacked nothing. And then to top creation off, God made us as human beings, you and me, in God's very own image. In the image of God, God created us, as the writer of Genesis says in Genesis 1.27. And we established that a defining feature of what it means for us to be made in God's image is that we have been made from and for community. First, we've been made from community. We've been made from God who is community because God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God will always be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there is community within God's own being. And because we've been made in God's image, we have been made for community. We have been made for community with God, and we've also been made for community with each other, uh, a relationship with God and a relationship with each other. Uh, in other words, God intends for us to have an unbroken relationship with himself and God also intends for us to have an unbroken relationship with the people around us. But as we established the second week of the series, we don't experience this kind of community anymore. Why is that? Because something happened along the way that disrupted all this, and theologians call this something the fall. The fall is the second major movement of the Bible. Uh, we read about the fall in Genesis 3. The story of who? Adam and Eve. And as we said, uh, the story of Adam and Eve, it's so much more than a story about two people in a garden. If we think the story of Adam and Eve is primarily about a story, uh, is primarily a story about two people in a garden long ago, we're going to miss the point. Because the story of Adam and Eve, when it comes down to it, it's a story about the entire human race. I'm Adam and Eve, you're Adam and Eve. Had we been in their position, we would have done the exact same thing. That collectively as human beings, we have chosen to rebel against God's perfect and holy love. And as a result of this disobedience, sin came into the world. Sin has affected everything. It's infected everything. 
Sin has thrown everything out of whack, not just us as human beings, but all of creation. All of creation, as the Bible teaches, is weighed down and oppressed by sin. Yet even so, God remained committed to creation and God remained committed to human beings in particular. And then we see that commitment on God's part take on new life in Genesis 12 as God calls the nation of Israel into existence, beginning with this elderly couple. Who were they? Abraham and Sarah. Uh, and then God establishes this new nation. And through Israel's story, we see God's intent, God's desire to eventually share salvation with the whole planet. And then that brings us to the fourth movement of the Bible, Jesus. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, promise of the people of Israel. And in Jesus, there's actually a plot twist to the story of God, because in Jesus, God himself comes into our world. God becomes a human being. He takes on flesh. He takes on skin. And we said in that message that everything God did in Jesus Christ, beginning in Bethlehem, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, and then culminating in Jerusalem, where he was crucified and resurrected, everything God did in Jesus Christ was about overturning what happened in the Garden of Eden. And Eden, paradise, was lost because of our sinfulness and rebellion. Yet through Jesus, God began the process of restoring paradise. We talked about a gardener getting dirty. God got down on his knees. He began that process of restoring paradise, reconciling us to God and reconciling us to each other. And then after Jesus ascended and returned back to God the Father in heaven, the Holy Spirit descended. Jesus ascended. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus's followers and the church was born. The church is the fifth movement of the Bible. It's the movement of God's story that we're inhabiting right now. And there are a lot of different metaphors for church in the New Testament. Uh, the church is called the bride of Christ. The church is called the family of God. Uh, but the predominant metaphor that's used for the church in Scripture is what? We talked about it last week. The body of Christ, that collectively, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, we are Jesus in this world. And folks, what that basically means for us is that we are charged with carrying out the work that Jesus started when he came among us. That we are to bind up the brokenhearted. We are to announce the good news. We are to release the captives. We are to preach about Jesus Christ. That through these efforts, the ministry of Jesus goes forward in this world. Because folks, the truth is, God loves this world. We cannot overstate this enough. God loves this world. And when Jesus comes back to our planet one day, he's already come one time. He came at Christmas. He's going to come again in the future. We don't know when that's going to be. Uh, preachers still try to figure out when he's going to come back, but we don't know when it's going to happen. He himself said, nobody knows the day or the hour. But when Jesus comes back to our planet to bring about the new creation, this is really important for us to recognize. His return is not going to involve taking human beings out of creation and then basically destroying everything that's left. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the church has historically taught. That kind of theology, it's pretty prevalent right now, especially here in America, but it's only been around for about 150 years. Instead, when Jesus comes back to our planet to bring about the new creation, it's not going to involve taking us out and destroying everything. When Jesus comes back, it's going to involve the renewal of everything, the restoration of everything. Listen with me to what the Apostle Paul writes here in Romans 8 as he expresses this hope that creation has for the return of Jesus. Paul writes, for all creation. He doesn't say some of creation, most of creation. For all creation, the entire created order 
is waiting eagerly. Can somebody say eagerly? eagerly? Is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. With eager, there's that word eager again, with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. And so let me ask this question. If Jesus were to return to our planet, take human beings out, and then basically annihilate everything that's left over, why would creation look forward to his return? Would you look forward to the return of Jesus if you knew that his return was going to involve your destruction? Of course not. None of us would. And it doesn't mean that for creation either. You see, folks, the story of the Bible begins in a garden where human beings mess up, we screw up, and all creation falls away. And the story of the Bible ends in a garden city where human beings, and not just human beings, but this whole cosmos, the entire universe, is renewed. Check out what the apostle, or actually not the apostle, but John of Patmos, it could have been the apostle John, we're not sure uh, if he was the same person as the apostle, but check out what John of Patmos paints for us in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as he talks about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. He says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things, they're not gone temporarily. They're not gone for a certain period of time. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. This is the promise of the new creation. This is the promise of the return of Jesus. No more death. No more cancer. No more illness. No more coronavirus. No more disease. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more heartache. No more broken relationships. The entire created order, everything that God has made, everything that God has put together, breathed into existence, the whole created order is going to be renewed. Trees are going to be renewed. Rivers are going to be renewed. Oceans are going to be renewed. Plants are going to be renewed. Animals are going to be renewed. People are going to be renewed. Everything, and when I say everything, I mean everything, is going to be renewed. Listen again what John says here in verse 5. And the one sitting on the throne, who would that be? Jesus, the Lamb of God. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Um, earlier this week, as I was um, putting together the sermon, um, I like to use illustrations when I preach, and so I was trying to think of a, an illustration that really captures this idea that when Jesus returns to bring about the new creation, that things are going to be like they were in the Garden of Eden before everything got screwed up. And so uh, we have toddlers in the house. I don't think I've ever told you that before. Uh, but we have toddlers in the house right now, Hannah and Noah, who are three and a half. And so these days, we're watching a lot of Disney movies. And uh, the Disney movie that came to mind for me is actually a movie that I grew up on, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Have you ever seen Beauty and the Beast before, right? If you haven't, you've been living under a rock for about the last 30 years. Uh, actually, when I was a kid, my brother, when he was small, he would say to our mom, I want to watch B&B, B&B, B&B. And of course, he was referring to uh, Beauty and the Beast. And so if you're not familiar with Beauty and the Beast, what happens at the very beginning, there's this young prince. And he's mean, 
He's cruel and he's selfish. He doesn't care about other people. He only thinks about himself. And there's this needy person who comes to him for hospitality. And she needs a place to stay for the night. But out of his selfishness, he turns her away. Because to him, she's hideous. She's ugly. Well, he doesn't know it, but this person who he turns away, she actually has magical powers. And so she puts a curse on him. She transforms him into this horrific beast. And it doesn't seem as if anybody could ever fall in love with him. And not only does he change into a beast, but the entire castle changes. It comes under this curse, and, and everybody inside the castle, they're all transformed, all the servants. But then what happens toward the end of the movie? Spoiler alert. But as we talked about, spoiler alerts actually help us to enjoy the story even more. What happens at the end is there's this young woman named Belle, the antagonist, and she comes to fall in love with the beast, and as a result, the curse is broken. The beast goes back to being a prince. Everybody in the castle, the, the servants, they go back to what they were before. Even the castle itself, we have a picture of this, even the castle itself comes to experience renewal. That's the new creation in a nutshell. Things are going to be like they were in the Garden of Eden before we messed up. And actually, to be faithful to what Scripture teaches, we don't simply have to wait for the return of Jesus to experience the new creation. Because the new creation is actually here among us right now. There are two dimensions of the new creation that theologians like to lift up. And so what I wanted to do in the rest of our time is I want to talk about the two dimensions of the new creation. The first dimension is the already. Can you say already? Already. already. And then the second dimension is the not yet. Can you say not yet? not yet? The already and the not yet. First, the already. The new creation is already here. It started when God came among us that first time in Jesus Christ, through Jesus' incarnation, when he became a human being, his ministry, his teachings, um, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Remember what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17? He says, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, there is a what? A new creation. It doesn't say there will be a new creation. There is a new creation. He's speaking in the present tense. And so the new creation is already here. It's breaking in all around us in a variety of ways. There's the already, and then number two, there's the not yet. That the new creation is not yet finished, it is not yet complete, and it will not be complete until Jesus returns to our planet and sets all things right. And what this means for us, what this means for you and me in the meantime, as we live in this in-between time, in-between the already and the not yet, is it means two things. Number one, we joyfully anticipate the not yet of the new creation. We joyfully anticipate the not yet of the new creation. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back to bring about the new creation uh, to, to complete it. But we know that it's going to happen someday in the future. And so, folks, we get excited about that. We're eager about that. We're enthusiastic about that. We're on the edge of our seats waiting for this to take place. I have a pastor friend. Her name is Sue. And Sue likes to tell the story of how one time when her niece Sarah was four years old, they were going to go to the beach, just the two of them, nobody else. And so early in the week, and they were going to go to the beach for the whole weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Well, on Monday before the beach trip, Sue calls Sarah on the phone. And she says, Sarah, are you excited about going to the beach this weekend? Are you ready to go to the beach? Well, then about a half hour later, Sue's sister, Sarah's mom, calls her on the phone. And she says, Sue, what did you say to Sarah? And she said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, Sarah has her suitcase packed, and she's at the edge of the driveway, and she's waiting for you right now. <laughs> you see, 
Sarah could not wait to go to the beach with her Aunt Sue. And so she had her backpack. She was ready to go. Are we anticipating the new creation with that same kind of excitement and enthusiasm? We joyfully anticipate. That's some joyful anticipation. We joyfully anticipate the not yet of the new creation. And then number two, we faithfully live into the already the new creation. Knowing that the new creation is going to involve the renewal of this whole universe, we join God in what God is doing right now to bring about this renewal. I love this quote that's been attributed to Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. Uh, we don't know if he actually said this, but these words have been attributed to him. He said, if I knew the world were going to end tomorrow, I would plant a tree. Now, why would Martin Luther plant a tree if he knew the world were going to end? Because Luther understood that the return of Jesus is going to involve the renewal of everything. Therefore, as a follower of Jesus, he was called by God to live into that renewal right now in this moment. And so here are my questions for you. How are we living into the already the new creation? How are we joining God in what God is doing right now to restore this world? Not long ago, I came across a story about this young woman named Paige. One day when Paige was 14 years old, she was walking home from a friend's house. Suddenly she was attacked by a stranger, brutally attacked. And she was even raped during that encounter. The experience left her with PTSD and depression. In fact, at one point she got so depressed that she decided that she was going to kill herself. There was a bridge close to her house. So she went to the bridge. She was holding onto the railing. She was just about to jump. Thankfully, there were these two men who saw what she was about to do, and they intervened and they talked her out of it. Well, after that, Paige got the help that she needed. And then she decided, moving forward, that she was going to help other people. And so what she now does, and you can read about this online, she's got a really cool story. What she now does is she spends three hours of her week, and she puts together notes for suicidal people. And she ties those notes to the very same bridge from which she almost jumped. She puts together notes like this one. I'm not sure if you can read this, but the note says, place your hand over your heart. Can you feel it? That's called purpose. You're alive for a reason, so don't ever give up. Or notes like this one that says, you have the power to say, this is not how my story will end. Since she started writing these notes, uh, and I read this story uh, not long ago, but you know, the number could be updated. Since she started writing these notes, Paige says that at least eight people, eight previously suicidal people have contacted her because she leaves her number on them, and said that her note literally saved their life. I'm not sure if Paige is a Christian or not, but even if she's unaware of what she's doing, she is planting trees. She is living into the new creation. All of us, by God's good grace, by the Holy Spirit's power, we are called to live into the new creation right now. And so, folks, we live into the new creation whenever we help out suicidal people, when we help suicidal folks to understand their worth and their value and their dignity. We live into the new creation whenever we welcome the outcast, whenever we include the marginalized, those whom everybody else is excluded, said to get away. We live into the new creation whenever we feed hungry people, whenever we clothe naked people, when we give the thirsty a drink, when we relieve suffering. We live into the new creation whenever we stand up for justice, when we take a, a bold stand against racism and sexism and classism 
and every other ugly ism. We live into the new creation whenever we forgive somebody. We live into the new creation whenever we encourage somebody and we speak words of blessing and comfort and peace. We live into the new creation whenever we care for this world, this beautiful planet that God has given to us. We live into the new creation whenever we take seriously the words of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. In other words, we don't only want God's will to be done up in heaven. We want God's will to be done down here on earth. We want earth to appear as heaven appears, as earth is going to appear in the future when Jesus returns. And folks, he's going to return when Jesus returns and all things are finally made right. And so there we have it. That's the whole story of the Bible. From beginning to end. Creation to new creation. Here's what I want to leave us with. This is not just a story for us to read. It's not just a story for us to spectate. This is a story for us to join in. This is a story for us to be a part of. This is a story for us to align ourselves with. So that's my question for you today. Will you align yourself? Will you align yourself with this story? Uh, 50 years ago, Rolling Stone magazine did an interview with John Lennon. You ever heard of John Lennon before? Uh, one of the founders of the Beatles, uh, probably the greatest rock and roll band of all time. Well, it was actually the first interview that John Lennon allowed for after leaving the Beatles. And so the question, why'd you do it, was on everybody's mind. Why'd you leave the Beatles? Why did you turn out all that fame, all that success, all that fortune, all those fans that you had? And so during this interview, John Lennon got really candid. He was vulnerable, he was transparent, he talked about the difficulty of being a beetle, having the paparazzi follow you, never getting any privacy to yourself. And then during the interview, this is how the dialogue went. Would you take it all back? The person asked as he was interviewing John Lennon. What, asked Lennon, being a beetle. Lennon paused for a long moment and then he said, if I could be a, fill in the blank, if I could be a bleeping fisherman, I would a pretty strange answer, isn't it? I mean, why on earth would you want to be a fisherman whom nobody knows about instead of a rock and roll icon whom everybody knows about? But I think when we dig beneath the surface, what we discover is that John Lennon wasn't so much saying, I want to be a fisherman. Instead, what he was saying was, if I could insert myself in a different story, I would. Because the story of being a beetle, it didn't give me the fulfillment that I was looking for. It didn't bring me the happiness that I was looking for. And all of us can relate, because if we're honest, all of us from time to time, we wanted to live a different kind of life. We wanted to insert ourselves in a different story. And yet the truth is, God in Jesus Christ is inviting us into the greatest story of all time. This story that started when he breathed this universe into being, when he said, let there be light. This story that continues right now by his grace, and this story that's going to last forever and ever and ever. This story that is only going to get better over time. As C.S. Lewis once famously said, every chapter is greater than the one before. This story alone will bring us the meaning and the fulfillment and the purpose that we crave and the depth of who we are. So will you align yourself? All of who you are, your entire existence, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength with the story. I hope you will.
I really do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, I remember being 16 years old when it finally clicked for me. I had grown up in church, but I was having doubts and questions. And then I finally began to realize just how much you love me, just how much you love all human beings and all of creation, how there is a story that you have written for us that you are calling us to align ourselves with. Thank you, God, for this remarkable story, the story that you have penned by your grace and by your power. Please, God, help all of us to align ourselves with this story, to be a part of what you are doing to restore this world in this moment. And God, we look forward to the day in which you're going to return to bring about the fulfillment of all things, to set all things free, to make all things right. God, forgive us for our sin, for our brokenness. Liberate us as only you can do. We pray all this in the strong and holy name of Jesus. Amen.